Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. We're going to tell uh, quite a lame joke, but uh, I'll hope you like it. How do you survive in the desert of Sahara? I don't know. You can eat all the sand which is there. Sand, which is, you get it? Anyway, I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Axel Soyberg and Joachim Nielsen of the Swedish heavy metal band Graveyard. That'll help break the ice. They are on tour now in the U.S. Later, we will speak with David France, director of the Oscar-nominated documentary How to Survive a Plague. Also coming up, Alex Karpovsky, one of the boys from the TV show Girls, gives us a list. Pulitzer finalist Karen Russell reads from her new book, and best-selling author Jackie Collins tells us all the ingredients of a bestseller. Somebody has an orgasm, somebody gets shot. Got it? Now everybody go make some money. There you go. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Obama administration is announcing aggressive steps to deal with cyber attacks linked to the Chinese government. The owner of the Los Angeles Lakers, Dr. Jerry Buss, has died. In Belgium, robbers made off with $50 million of uncut diamonds. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Richard Lawson. He is senior writer at The Atlantic Wire. That is The Atlantic Magazine's online presence. Richard Lawson, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? I'm going to be talking about a Russian woman who caught her fiancé cheating on her via the Russian version of Google Maps. Whoa. Really? What happened? Yeah. Well, it was kind of a, it was, it was accidental. She wasn't seeking it out. She was on this, it's called Yandex Maps. You know, you can do street view and all that. So mm-hmm. she was looking up an address and she saw a man who looked to be him with his arm around another woman. Uh-huh. And then when her fiance got home, she called up the, the page oh. and she watched his face for reaction and it was confirmed, I guess, in, oh, in his. Oh man. my gosh. Yeah. What are the wow. chances? Russia, I thought Russia was really big. <laughs> well, apparently, well, this was in the city of Perm, yeah. if that's pronounced correctly. So maybe that's small. I don't A know. tiny or, town. Or this guy just got really, really unlucky. Or she did, depending on how you look at it. I've heard of people getting in trouble in their relationships because of their Google search history, oh. <laughs> but, but <laughs> right, never right. because of a mapping device. Well, it's a new, brave new world now. I mean, you just have to, I don't know, live in a basement and never be photographed. Now all Russians are going to be wearing those huge fur hats even in the summer right. just, just exactly. to make themselves less recognizable to the cameras. I wonder what the address was she was looking up. Like, was it like a... She typed in my, my fiancé's mistress's house and then... There, <laughs> and there, and there, there it was, was, right out front. Bang. <laughs> uh, but this couldn't... I think it might have happened years ago when Google Maps first came out, but now they blur out faces. But I guess this Russian company doesn't yet. Yeah. You thought the this... KGB was bad. Here comes Yandex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and there, you know, there is something of a little silver lining here, or something of a happy ending. The woman, Marina, she said that she had initially blamed the internet almost because that she didn't intend to see this, but she's come to peace and, and she's not mad at the web anymore, which I think is nice. You yeah, know, that... so then she can use it to uh, find a new fiancé. <laughs> I mean, not much you can do no. in 2013 if you're mad at the internet. Richard Lawson, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is the Amazon rainforest, except the Amazon is full of booze. Party time for the monkeys. (laughs) First, the history part. This week back in 1878, a new type of book was published. Though it didn't quite start out as a book, Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Today in the U.S., there are hundreds of millions of phone lines. Back in 1878, there were 50. 
They were all in New Haven, Connecticut, where the telephone's inventor, Alexander Graham Bell, set up the first phone company. And that February, to let each customer know the other 49 folks they could call, Bell published the first phone directory. It was a single cardboard sheet, and it only listed names. All you had to do was pick up your phone, tell the operator who you wanted to talk to, and she'd connect you. That is, if there was an operator on duty. A note at the bottom of the directory explained calls could only be placed from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. Still, business boomed. Enough so that by November, Bell had to issue a second directory. This one with almost 400 listings. 20 pages long, it was the first actual phone book. And with its separate business listings, it was also the first yellow pages. Only problem? All those new customers had never used a phone. So in addition to listings, the phone book contained instructions. Like, for instance... Never take the telephone off the hook unless you wish to use it. When you're done talking, say, that is all. The book also advised customers to, quote, leave your lower lip and jaw free while speaking, and that you'd have to get permission from the company to make more than two calls per hour. Today, of course, phone books are everywhere, though in the age of the Internet, some argue they're unnecessary, not to mention a tad wasteful. In 2010 alone, Americans threw away 650,000 tons of phone books. So that was the history. Now for the drink to go with it, I'm speaking with John Gennetti. He is owner of the bar and restaurant 116 Crown in New Haven, Connecticut, birthplace of the phone book. John, what cocktail did that story inspire? Uh, that inspired a tropical Tom Collins. Really? What, yeah. What about a phone book screams tropical to you? Well, I'm going to make it with all alcohols that have first and last names. Oh, <laughs> really? With proper names, basically? Yeah, the Tom Collins is going to be made with the names of others. Like names in a phone book. That is great. Yes, yeah, so I hope it's not too campy. No. Listen, have you ever listened to this show? There's no such thing as too campy. I had hoped. Okay. <laughs> we have Jackie Collins on the show later. Awesome. So Tom Collins, obviously, a proper name. What else is in this thing? So we're going to make it with uh, a gin from a gentleman called Martin Miller's. So it's Martin Miller's London Dry Gin. All right. Uh, some lemon juice, which, unfortunately, I, I don't know the, the paternal... Uh, origins of you're forgiven simple syrup and to make it tropical we're going to use some of john d taylor's velvet falernum oh falernum that's a, a kind of uh, rum it's a it's a barbados liqueur so it's often mixed with rum okay and then we're going to seal the deal with tiki bitters from the bittermans there's no first name of the bittermans we don't know their first name i think there's two first names but i, I could run up and grab the bottle but i don't have it with me <laughs> quite all right yeah although i'm a little sad that you didn't put all those in alphabetical order oh you know, I, there's always the one stitch in the rug that I missed. But you've got so you've got all these things, and how do you put it together? Uh, we would take all of the ingredients, shake it over ice, strain it over fresh ice, garnish it with a piece of orange and a cherry, rinse and repeat because this is going to be good, uh, tasty. Although to keep with the theme, you should never actually drink it and then just throw it in a recycling bin. Yeah, <laughs> or we could. I got to fab something up so I can use it to sit on at the dinner table. And Brendan, John has a point, right? We would lose a lot if we banned phone books. Yeah. Like, like he said, you can put one on a chair to make a cheap booster seat for your kid. That's gone. Private detect gum shoes wouldn't be able to track people down. It's a terrible world. I don't want to live in that world. <laughs> Folks, 
We have a directory of all our drink recipes. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click cocktails. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is Alex Karpovsky. He plays the edgy coffee shop boss Ray in the hit HBO series Girls. He is also an award-winning indie filmmaker. Here he is to tell us about his latest movies and give us a list. Hi, my name is Alex Karpovsky. I'm an actor and a filmmaker. I have two movies coming out. One is called Rubberneck, which is a thriller. And the other one is called Red Flag, which is about a filmmaker called Dallas Karpovsky, which is my name, who is on a tour with a movie that he made a few years ago across several southern states. And we filmed the movie while I was really on tour with an earlier movie. So it's a self-reflective meta-comedy in many ways. I've been asked to make a list of meta-movies, movies that either break down the fourth wall or somehow turn the lens around on themselves and enter their own little wormholes. One movie that comes to mind, a movie that I'm a huge fan of, is 24-Hour Party People by Michael Winnebottom, starring Steve Coogan. The movie is based on the life of Tony Wilson, who's kind of at the center of this movement in British music history from, I guess, probably the late 70s into the 80s. Steve Coogan plays Tony Wilson, and in many instances in the film, he turns right to the camera and lets you know that this is actually what happened, or actually this is a total narrative fancy that we've decided to take for dramatic effect. You're uh, going to be seeing a lot more of that sort of thing in the film, um, although that actually did happen. Obviously, it's symbolic. It works on both levels. Uh, I don't want to tell you too much. don't want to spoil the film. Uh, but I'll just say Icarus, OK? If you know what I mean, great. If you don't, it doesn't matter. But you should probably read more. There's sort of a, a rebellious streak in it that's couched in, in comedy where they're being very open about the fact that they're more interested in entertaining you than adhering to history. And I find that bad boy, enfant terrible, appealing and also really funny. Another movie, a much zanier movie, and a movie that, as a kid, I used to watch over and over again and quote all the time is Spaceballs. Uh, I just thought it was so funny and stupid <laughs> uh, in the best possible way. There's this one moment where the villains are chasing the heroes and they can't find them anywhere. So they come up with the idea to watch Spaceballs. And they fast forward... They fast-forward through the movie, and their goal is to get beyond the point in the movie where you are now so they can figure out where the heroes went. Prepare to fast-forward! Preparing to fast-forward! Fast-forward! Fast-forwarding, sir! And they stop in the moment where they are now in the movie, and they kind of go into this infinite regress, like staring at yourself in a mirror with a mirror behind you. What the hell am I looking at? When does this happen in the movie? Now. You're looking at now, sir. It's like complete in-your-face um, meta-absurdity. And it was just so clever and funny. I love that moment. When will then be now? Soon. A third project that came to mind was The Trip, also directed by Michael Winterbottom and also starring Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. And they're, they're basically playing Steve Coogan and, and Rob and the public's image of those people in England, where they're famous. Hello. Hey, Rob, Steve. Oh, hiya. How are you? Good, good. Uh, listen, are you free next week to go away? Um, it's kind of a tour, tour of the north, a restaurant tour, really good restaurants. I think you can think of a meta-comedy or a meta-film as one that breaks down the fourth wall, and this movie doesn't do that, but I still think it's a meta-film in the sense that the main characters are playing caricatured versions of themselves. 
One of the scenes that I really like is when Steve Coogan is really frustrated with his career and he feels he's plateauing and he really wants to go to Hollywood. And he's got this dream sequence where he is being led through this poolside party by Ben Stiller and talking about all the auteurs that are lining up who want to work with Steve Coogan. It's incredible. Everybody wants to work with you. I get a call from P.T. Anderson. I get a call from Wes Anderson. Noah Baumbach, Todd Haynes, Alexander Payne, all of them. They're all auteurs. Yeah, and they're all geniuses and they want to work with the genius. I think there are pros and cons to playing caricatured versions of yourselves in your own movies. Pros are you don't have to do a lot of research. You basically can draw from a well that's very close to you. And maybe there's also a mild psychotherapeutic benefit from basically exploring your problems on the other side of it, the con is, it's also incredibly vain and narcissistic to think that other people would be interested in your problems. That's why I try to really exaggerate them to the point that they're just funny. The guest list from Alex Karpovsky. His two new movies, Rubberneck and Red Flag, open in theaters and on iTunes this week, and you can see them on TV in Girls. And by the way, the movie Spaceballs, Alex mentioned, was a 1987 sci-fi parody by the great Mel Brooks, and it kills me that there are people listening who don't know that already. It's hard to contemplate. I don't want to. Folks, coming up, we meet Oscar-nominated filmmaker David France when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, Pulitzer finalist Karen Russell sinks her teeth into a new short story collection. And in a few minutes, we'll teach you everything you ever wanted to know about potato chips. Yay. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's David France. His journalism has been published in The New Yorker, GQ, and elsewhere. He was a senior editor for Newsweek, but this weekend you will see him at the Academy Awards where his debut film, How to Survive a Plague, is up for Best Documentary Feature. It is about the activist group ACT UP, which in the 80s and 90s focused the world on the AIDS crisis and helped bring about today's treatments for it. David came into the studio this week to talk about the film. David, welcome. Thank you. First of all, why make this movie now? I'm glad you did, but why pick this moment to make this film? I mean, a lot of this, the events happened decades ago. They did. Well, you know, it's a story that ends in 1996. And, and I think after 96, when the effective medications came out, mm-hmm. the wild death rate suddenly dropped mm-hmm. you know, by 80%. We stopped kind of collectively talking about and thinking about what AIDS wrought in America. It is amazing to me. Like The, the movie begins six years into the mm-hmm. epidemic. Right. Hundreds of thousands have died. There is no effective treatment. And it reminded me that I lived through that time. Mm-hmm. I even I, I briefly actually roomed with an ACT UP activist, and I had forgotten amazing. about it. Did you find that that was typical of audiences? Was, that was an impetus? Well, my impetus actually was, was thinking back on how we remember the years, the plague years in America. I realized that all those brilliant pieces and films and uh, plays and books that we consider the canon of, of AIDS, Angels in America, um, they were all written right in the middle of the plague years, addressing what it was like to be suddenly beset by a mysterious new virus that no one understood and which took on cultural and political and, and you know, so-called moral dimensions. But nobody had really captured the idea of what the community, this brilliant thing that the community of people infected and affected uh, by AIDS 
did, this massive movement, this grassroots uh, kind of uprising of mostly gay men, and how all of that work kind of brilliantly transformed America. You know, this movie, I, I will admit, I went into it feeling like I was in for hours of depression. Right, here's an, another AIDS movie. Everybody thinks they know the AIDS story. That is right. And and I was surprised to find that, and, and there are difficult portions of the film, obviously, but the... I was surprised that in a way it's a portrait of these kind of heroic acts that are actually very inspiring. Who was who's the person in the film that kind of most inspires you or Well, you? I, you know, I'm uh, the movie is about a very small corner of act up that took on science. Finally realized that you can't just yell at drug companies and demand, you know, a, a pill, an effective pill. Yeah. So it's a group of people who taught themselves science. They None of them had any scientific background. The, the woman that sort of fomented this, a woman named Iris. Iris Long, she's this fascinating kind of catalyst from, from out of nowhere. Tell us about her for those who haven't seen the movie because she's, uh, she's fascinating. Well, Hacked Up, you know, is a group mostly of people with HIV, mostly gay men, mostly actors and artists. Um, you know, that was the first community that was struck. Sure. But very early on, like one of the very first meetings, there appears this middle-aged or older uh, retired chemist, uh, straight woman from Queens. She was so out of place. You know, in in, in her world, everybody else in the room was out of place. But people looked at her and they thought, well, she had no sense of style. She she was... (laughs) She didn't come with any of the kind of the, the cultural armaments Signifiers. That, that people were using to do their battle. I mean, these were artists using art initially to, to fight the war. And she came in and she said, you know, I know a little something about science. She was a pharmaceutical chemist and she was somehow propelled into the arms of ACT UP by a kind of religious motivation that she needed to help and that she had something that she could share. And she brings it into the room and she tries to bring it up week after week. Nobody pays any attention to her. She's a... In a room full of remarkable orators, yeah. she's, she can't spin a sentence. But she would take the mic and she would try to tell people what she had learned about the way drugs are researched and how the FDA is organized. And people would take those opportunities to go out and have a cigarette. It was a big smoking time, <laughs> the 80s. When she spoke. And finally somebody grabbed the microphone, in fact, a, an activist um, named Vito Russo, um, and excoriated the people in the room saying, you've got to shut up, you've got to listen. If you're going to save your lives... Iris is going to bring you information that's going to be necessary for you. It, and it's amazing. I mean, she brings them the information, they educate themselves, and they succeed. I mean, the thing that's very amazing to me about this movie is that it's an activist group that really had massive, massive success on, on a global level mm-hmm. to a point that I can't really remember an activist group having that kind of success for the last many decades. Certainly not since, yeah. What do you attribute that to? What made this group succeed? They had no choice. There was nothing theoretical about this movement. The people Mm. who I focus on in the film, you know, they've been given 18 months to live. They've got nothing to lose, really, um, and only something to win. And the amount of purpose and kind of collective empowerment is born out of um, really no other options. Let me ask you our two standard questions. Perhaps on a lighter note, mm-hmm. the first of them, we ask this of all of our guests of honor. If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What oh. question would you least like to answer or that you're asked maybe too often? Well, I'm, because of the film, I'm asked frequently about my activism hmm. in that period and my activism in doing the film. I'm, I'm continually described as an activist. And I think of myself not as an activist at all, but as a storyteller and as a kind of a fact 
digger. Is that because you don't want to take the glory away from those you would consider active? Uh, no, I don't have the character for it. I, <laughs> I couldn't do what these guys did. And really? No, I could not. I could not have done it. You have and to like, stand why, apart from it. That's that's why I chose the route that I that I chose, which was to be a journalist. And you, I'm you know I'm in the footage. I'm, yeah. I'm way in the background as a a nervous young man, <laughs> young reporter, filling my notepads, but really just chronicling. And I don't want to be seen as being on the platform with the people who are actually making the difference. If you were to win, if you win the Oscar, I'm assuming that that's uh, that's be... a platform I'll take. <laughs> <laughs> Our second question is: Tell us something we don't know, and this can be either about yourself, which you sort of already did, but mm-hmm. I'll ask you anyway. Um, about yourself or about the world at large? Well, you know, I've spent so much time in the last year and a half in the AIDS world. Um, Yeah, that's what your head is full of. But people just don't know so much about what's going on in AIDS today. You know, there's four people have been now cured. Only one published case, but... Everybody else is sort of maintaining, they sort of fight the symptoms. Everybody else on the drugs are just, you know, if if you go off the drugs for a day or two or a week or a month... You have AIDS again, but there are patients who are are curing, are being cured of this. They are there are people who are cured, and it's a thrilling breakthrough for doctors and certainly anybody with HIV to think that um, that this constant uh, battle for survival could be ended. David France. This weekend, his film How to Survive a Plague is up for the Best Documentary Feature Oscar. It comes out on DVD this coming week. And you can find links to our interviews with some of this year's other Oscar nominees. They're on our blog at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Karen Russell's debut novel, Swamplandia, was a finalist for the 2012 Pulitzer Prize. She's just released a new book to similarly rapturous reviews. Today we overhear her reading a juicy excerpt. Hi, I'm Karen Russell. I have a new collection of short stories, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, and I'm going to be reading from the title story, uh, The Eponymous Vampires in the Lemon Grove. In October... The men and women of Sorrento harvest the primo fiori, or first flowering fruit, the most succulent lemons. In March, the yellow bianchetti ripen, followed in June by the green verdelli. In every season, you can find me sitting at my bench, watching them fall. Only one or two lemons tumble from the branches each hour, but I've been sitting here so long, their falls seem contiguous, close as raindrops. McGrab, my wife, has no patience for this sort of meditation. Jesus Christ, Clyde, she says. You need a hobby. Most people mistake me for a small, kindly Italian grandfather, a nono. I have an old nano's coloring, the dark walnut stain peculiar to southern Italians, a tan that won't fade until I die, which I never will. The few visitors to the lemon grove who notice me smile blankly into my raisin face and catch the whiff of some sort of tragedy. They whisper that I am a widower or an old man who has survived his children. They never guess that I'm a vampire. Santa Francesca's lemon grove, where I spend my days and nights, was part of a Jesuit convent in the 1800s. In summers, a teenage girl named Fila mans a wooden stall at the back of the grove. I can tell by the careful way she saves the best lemons for me, slyly kicking them under my bench, that she knows I am a monster. 
Sometimes she'll smile vacantly in my direction, but she never gives me any trouble. The moon is a muted shade of orange. Twin disks of light burn in the sky and the sea. Magreb is sitting on the bench, blinking her bright pumpkin eyes. Magreb roots through the tall black blades of grass. It's late, Clyde. Where's my lemon? I pluck a soft, round lemon from the grass, a summer moon, perfect, flawless. She looks at it with distaste and makes a big show of brushing off a marching ribbon of ants. A toast, I say. A toast, my wife replies, with the rote enthusiasm of a Christian saying grace. We lift the lemons and swing them to our faces. We plunge our fangs, piercing the skin, and emit a long, united hiss. <sighs> Over the years, Maghreb and I have tried everything. Fangs and apples, fangs and rubber balls. We spent our honeymoon hopping continents, hunting liquid chimeras, jet black coffee in Bogota, jackal's milk in Dakar, cherry coke floats in rural Alabama a thousand beverages purported to have magical quenching properties, before finding our oasis here, at this dead nun's lemonade stand. These lemons are a vampire's analgesic. If you have been thirsty for a long time, if you have been suffering, then the absence of those two feelings, however brief, becomes a kind of heaven. There is no word sufficiently lovely for the first feeling of my fangs in that lemon. I breathed deeply through my nostrils. My throbbing fangs were still. By daybreak, the numbness had begun to wear off. The lemons relieve our thirst without ending it, like a drink we can hold in our mouths but never swallow. Eventually, the original hunger returns. I have tried to be very good, very correct and conscientious about not confusing this original hunger with the thing I feel for my wife. Writer Karen Russell reading from her new collection of short stories, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, and you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So Rico, it's Oscar weekend, and you know what that means. Yes, Joan Rivers is going to be mean. Yeah. It's what she does. <laughs> that and people are going to be at Oscar parties watching TV and eating chips. That is also correct. But with a fancy dip, you know, to distinguish it from a Super Bowl party. Sure. It'll but actually, the chips are getting fancy, too. Uh-huh. You've got plantain chips now, kale chips, soy chips. Of course. All of which inspired Sam Dean to write a history of the chip for Bon Appetit. Good job. So I went to my local deli, bought a bunch of chips, and sat down with Sam to munch and talk and I mentioned that 50 years ago, our chip options would have been way more limited. Yeah, it would have pretty much just been potato chips, corn chips, maybe tortilla chips if you lived in the Southwest. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Fritos weren't invented until the 30s. Mm. Uh, potato chips weren't really sold around the country until also the 30s. Well, let's talk about it. Where, where did the idea of a potato chip even come from? There, we know the location. Okay. The, the, the inventor is a little suspect, but the story mm. goes that it was in um, – Saratoga Springs, which was a big resort in the 1850s, mm-hmm. northern New York. And uh, there was a cranky chef named George Crumb. <laughs> it's always a cranky chef. Yeah, he's irascible. <laughs> Everything describes him as irascible, all those tour reports. French fried potato chips were already a thing. They were supposedly brought by Thomas Jefferson to the U.S., actually. But mm. uh, 
So a diner was eating his, his French fried potatoes and he complained that they were too thickly cut. So he sent them back to the kitchen. Hmm. George Crumb cut them thinner, refried them, sent them back out to, to annoy the guy. But the guy loved them. And so then the potato chip was born. Because <laughs> he liked the crunch, right? Because he likes the one crunch. of the attractive things about the chip when you're eating it with food is the crunch. Right. So this guy made these potato chips at his little restaurant. Mm-hmm. But now potato chips are absolutely everywhere. How did that happen? Some of the most famous people in the country ate at Saratoga Springs at the time, the Vanderbilts, Mm. um, kind of the the founding fathers of New York City. And so with wealth goes culture often. Mm. And so uh, the potato chip kind of spread out. And uh, at first it was available in kind of big barrels in, you know, your corner general store, things like that. But in the the late 1800s, Someone started actually selling them in bags, which okay. seems obvious now, but at yeah. the time, you know. So. Barrel of chips, that would be hard to put on your lap while you're watching TV. Very hard. <laughs> and even even the little mini kegs, they're kind of yeah. heavy. And then the name brand that we all know, Lay's Potato Chips, right? Mm-hmm. They were key into kind of expansion of the chip. Right, definitely. Tell me about that. Yeah, so in 1932, a guy named Herman Lay started making his own chips in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee. And then by the end of the decade, he was kind of popularizing them all over the country. And then that's when potato chips picked up. Gotcha. He could have called them Herman's. I think wisely he did not. (laughs) The world world would have been different. Right. That was already, yeah. Well, then you talk about Pringles. When did Pringles show up on the scene? Pringles were introduced in in 69. um, And so were kind of the chip for the new decade of the 70s. They were so weird at the time that Procter & Gamble, the, the kind of pharmaceutical company who invented them, Whoa. called them uh, Pringles Newfangled Potato Chips. So that guy on the cover is Pringle, presumably. Oh, he's a character. And those are his newfangled potato chips. Well, and they're basically – what are they? They're just like – Those are air-dried potato mash. OK. Basically. Yeah. They're not fried. Yeah. They're salted. They're just air-dried. How come it doesn't surprise me that a tube of crunchy potato things would rise in 1969 when other – habits were <laughs> coming <laughs> coming into culture where people needed to munch. Right. It does uh, It does definitely fit with the trends of the time. Yeah. We didn't have Pringles at my house. How about mm-hmm. you? Did you have any Pringles at your house? My, for the most part, my house as a kid was very crunchy, not in the oh. chip way, in the like, oh, like granola. granola. Oh, yeah. I see. So, all right. So you grew up in a crunchy house. Then let's skip ahead to the 90s because mm-hmm. you may have been tricked into thinking the popular chip of the 90s was healthy. Well, in the 90s, it was taro chips. Which How is, did they sneak up on the scene? Well, it was actually, I mean, they're they're kind of chic. They're the um, and if you don't know, they're those purple tubers that are popular in the Pacific. Yeah. That kind of and they actually they were started by a uh, couple of New York chefs quit their jobs as chefs, started a catering company, okay. and wanted something like a signature hors d'oeuvre to serve at fancy parties. Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Well, these look weird, certainly." <laughs> and uh, and then you know again, it kind of fancy people started eating them. Yeah. And one of their first big clients actually was uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, started oh, wow. selling those black and silver bags of Terra Taro chips. Right. So let's talk about right now. There's there's tons of chips everywhere. Everything that we've discussed, you can find in a store still. What's the chip of the moment, would you say? I think we're still uh, in the heyday of the kale chip hmm. or kale variants, leafy things toasted and fried with salt on them. And it's like a chip and a salad kind of in one thing. You make it unhealthy and then people want to eat it. Well, exactly. But it's still <laughs> a lot healthier than – than an actual potato chip. Okay, so it does kind of retain some of the fiber and stuff that you would want. Yeah. So what what do you think we're going to see in the next couple of years? Well, I just think that the the kale chip will deepen mm-hmm. in the same way that you know corn chips turn into Doritos and Fritos and every you know flaming hot Cheetos. <laughs> yeah. uh, you'll, we'll, flaming hot kale chips. Flaming like hot it. kale chips might not be in the future, but you know something like that. Uh, yeah. And different because there's so many uh, varieties of leafy things. Yeah. That grow quickly and that are available. That I mean, I think we'll see cabbage. Chips. Mm. I mean, I would love uh, 
This might be a little intense, but horseradish chips. You know, you have a Sam Dean. You have a strong name. Mm -hmm. I feel like you could Sam Dean's cabbage chips. Yeah, Dean's the Dean's list of you know, <laughs> just a lot of bad puns to make. I, I think there's you have, there's a future for you in <laughs> chips, Sam Dean. You can take those plantain chips with you. Thanks so much oh, for thanks. telling us the history of chips. Yeah, no, anytime. Enrico, we should point out that the history of the potato chip is disputed. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's a hot controversy. Some say that it was actually invented when someone at that Saratoga Springs restaurant accidentally dropped potato slices into a pot of hot oil. That's interesting. Yeah. Unlike Red Hot Cheetos, right, which were created by aliens to destroy children's tongues. That's exactly how that happened. That's no disputing that. Folks, we're going to take a break. Back. Coming up, best-selling author Jackie Collins answers your etiquette questions. Believe it. When the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we will hear a brand new tune from the band Phoenix. And coming up, writer Alain de Botton anoints Brendan high priest of radio. You know, the guy who leads the radio show is called a host. Now, host is a religious term. You know, Brendan, I hear the Vatican is hiring. That'd be perfect for you. <laughs> and give up all of this? Free books, paper cups of water, never. It is luxurious. I don't blame you for staying. But I am available for weddings. I'm aware of that. Especially receptions. But ladies and gentlemen, first it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is the queen of bad behavior, at least on the page, author Jackie Collins. She has been churning out debauched bestsellers since 1968. Together they've sold over 500 million copies, and they have all hit the New York Times bestseller list. Her latest, about a yacht cruise full of billionaires and supermodels, came out this week. It is called The Power Trip. And welcome back to the show. Thank you, Rico. I'm happy to be here. Um, now, first of all, we wanted to play a clip from your last visit here during which you oh. took a shine to my name. Do we have this ready? Let's, let's hear it. By the way, I love your name, Rico. I have to have a, a, a hero called Rico yes. immediately. It's like the old Barry Manilow song. His name was Rico. And anyway. Copacabana actually sounds like Galliano, which is your last name. That's so, right. so there's actually that's a Galliano, this is getting better all the time. He's yeah. straight out of one of my books. Well, you know what? We're going we're gonna to sell the rights <laughs> to Rico his... Galliano. <laughs> I like it. See? Now, I flipped through the book. Yeah, we looked at the book, Jackie. And you couldn't there's find no Rico. Rico. There's no Rico Galliano. Yeah, there's, no, a Latin, there's a Latin singer in this book that would have been perfect for that name. You're absolutely right. I called him Luca. But what's interesting is we shouldn't be too hard on Jackie because the lead character, the rich billionaire, is named Brendan Francis Noonan. So thank you, Jackie, <laughs> for using my name. The rich Russian billionaire is Brendan Francis yeah. Noonan. Oh, I yeah. love my Russian billionaires. <laughs> All right. Well, do you know any Russian billionaires? I do, yeah. I bet you do. Yeah, I was in Moscow a couple of years ago and I met quite a few. Oh, my goodness. I met one. We went through the Red Square. It was incredible. He had all these bodyguards, and they just flung, they flung people out of the way, and the people did not object. So he had cameras following us, and he had this beautiful singing star wife. And I thought this is like a scene from one of my books, definitely. Are you saying that this book is a documentary? No, I'm not. If it is, it's a very sexy documentary. It is pretty sexy. <laughs> it makes me feel bad about myself reading it. Like, my life is not as What, you read high the, the, the waterfall scene where they I do remember the water souls. Yes. island and the perverted uh, politicians. Speaking of all of this, you know, you open up the power trip, and it is, Jackie, it's amazing. There is sex and a murder within the first six sentences of this book. I know. That was kind of interesting because when I wrote that, and that's the prologue, yeah. um, somebody has an orgasm, somebody gets shot. <laughs> Simultaneously. I no, yes. Yes, simultaneously. 
Anyway, when I wrote that, I had no idea who these two characters were.、Mm. It was only when I wrote the book, as I was three quarters of the way through the book, who I realized who they were. Wow! Because my characters take me on a trip, and in the power trip, there's so many of them. There's Australians, there's Russians, there's Americans, there's English, and of course Latin.、Yeah. And I, I love, you know, my Luca. Rico, maybe you should change your name to Luca. That's true. No, I, I still want to do your name, Rico. <clears throat> okay. I, I think it's a great name. You're welcome to it for a small percentage of the sales. Okay. Let's go to questions. People、yeah. really wanted to ask you a bunch of questions. And、uh, this book is international. Our questions are international. Oh, this good.、Week. This question comes、uh, from South Africa. David writes. He obviously knows your your writing, Jackie. The question is: Is it wrong to make love in the bed of my significant other's sister, while the party is still going on downstairs?、Mm. Should I tell her sister this happened? <laughs> Please answer. Feel bad, but I don't know what to do. Thanks. It depends. It absolutely depends how drunk everybody is. <laughs>、mm. <clears throat> If they're all drunk downstairs and they're not going to come up and discover you,、mm -hmm. I think you can do it. Really? Only try not to mess up the bed too much, if、mm. you know what I mean. I see. <laughs> But the second part of this. So should they tell? Should he tell his significant other's sister later that this happened? Yeah.、Uh, much later. Yeah, maybe a couple of months later. I don't understand、yeah. why. Why do you ever have to tell them, especially if you're going to make sure the bed isn't messed well, up? Well, it's like people who cheat, and the, and then they get this guilt complex, and then they feel they've got to tell、mm. their significant other that they cheated, but, and then everything is over, and nothing is ever the same again. Because once a cheater, always a cheater. I think you guys are missing something, though. What are、mm. we missing? All right. Well, the reason David probably wants to do this is because there's like kind of an exit, the thrill of almost getting caught. And you're、oh. saying if they're if you're almost going to get caught, you shouldn't do it. Well, I had a girlfriend that loved the thought. Of getting caught, and she'd lived in an apartment building. She would make love in the elevator, hoping somebody would open it and find them. Man, but they never did. I think she、mm. was most disappointed. I、All、can't、right. believe you would have a friend like that <laughs> <laughs> that、um, lives in an apartment building. And then she had the audacity to get married, and so I got no more of her stories. Oh, I'm sure、yeah. the stories are still happening, though. Oh, you think? Call her up. Here is、yeah. something from Graham via Facebook. Graham writes: Is it polite to eat your drink's garnish before you drink the drink? Or should you drink the cocktail before consuming the garnish? Now this is a very good question because I go to Mr. Chow's, a restaurant in L.A. a lot,、oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and I always have the lychee martini,、oh. and it comes with two fabulous lychees in it on yeah, sticks. Probably the best garnish. Absolutely. Cocktail,、yeah. But then, when you go to drink it, you've got these leeches falling in your face all the time. Yeah, something you don't want. <laughs> That is the question. It's a question of style.、Um, I think that you eat the garnish. Otherwise, you're going to be having difficulty drinking the drink. I have a question, though.、Yeah. Are the leeches on a cocktail sword?、Mm. They are. Okay, because yes, I I deploy my I use I have olives in my gin martini. Me yeah, too. But I'll, I'll eat one kind of early on, and then I like the other one to saturate with the gin. Exactly. I、yeah. do exactly the same thing. All right. Yeah. But then、so、what do you do though? Here's the question: What do you do with that sword full of lychees or olives? You know, maybe you eat one of them, but you still got some left over. Do you put it on the cocktail napkin? You leave it in the. You、drink. leave it in the. So、drink. it absorbs the drink. But then、yeah. here's the problem: as Jackie mentioned, it keeps banging you in the cheek as you're like sipping your cocktail. Well, unlike Jackie, I'm not doing it like a. Shooter shot. I mean, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm no, elegantly I'm, sipping. Yeah, exactly. I try to do the same. <laughs> you don't chug your martini, Brendan. I don't get it. I、uh, mean, I think if you're on a date, you could offer her a lychee. You know. You、oh, can say, "Would you like one of these?" Oh, there we go!、Very、and then、delicious. you hold the sword out、that's、with it、sexy. on there. Sharing the garnish from a drink is quite sexy when you think about it. You know, you pass somebody like a little slice of lemon and let them suck on it. It's oh man, Graham! I think you have the answer to more than your question. <laughs> and I hear another chapter of the next book getting written as we speak. I that's right. Like this, yes. Here is Sandra via Facebook. Sandra writes, "How formal should one dress?" 
Oh, this is perfect for your book. How formal should one dress for formal nights on a cruise? Are pants oh, is, for a lady formal enough? This mm. is this is perfect because Bianca in the book, who is this beautiful supermodel, she kind of strides into dinner wearing the most incredible leopard skin pants and a very short crop top <laughs> and fabulous jewelry. And that's dressy enough for me. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. I think that is your answer. So. That's your answer. <laughs> Let's just move on. Let's move it's on. It's sexy and it's hot. Okay. So this question comes from Charles in Fairfield, California. He, he writes, as a mailman... I routinely receive gifts at the holidays. I see them as customers thanking me for my good service. Am I required to write thank you notes for these thank yous? That's hmm. a very interesting one because we all like to tip our mailman at Christmas. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think you don't. He doesn't have to write thank you notes. However, if he did write thank you notes, he would probably get even more money the next year. <laughs> That's right because yeah. he'll be delivering more mail. Exactly. <laughs> That's <laughs> But he he would appreciate those people, you know. It's right. But isn't it yeah. really nice to get a – I got a handwritten thank you note this week. Yes. You know, so, I used to do it. When I went on shows and everything, I would write yeah. the host a letter and thank them for being on the show and everything. Yeah. But then I kind of stopped doing it because everybody was emailing everybody. Yeah. How do you feel about email Christmas cards? Mm. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm not, no, I don't yeah, think so, so either. I'm it's so. happening more often too. Yeah. Absolutely. I, and I know you don't send thank you notes anymore, but thank you for giving us that Corvette last time you were. That was pretty sweet. Well, that was a pleasure. Rico and I fought Did over. Did you like the, the color? Yeah, it's yeah. leopard skin. <laughs> Used to belong to Pamela Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> Rico gets it Tuesday, Thursdays. I get it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Excellent. So. And on the weekend, whoever's wearing the biggest gold medallion gets it. <laughs> Jackie Collins, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and telling oh. our audience how to behave, which is uh, to give us stuff. Thanks, guys. This was so much fun. I loved it. Favorite guest ever, Jackie Collins. Her new book is called The Power Trip. It's easy to find. Just go to your local bookstore and look for the book with steam billowing off the cover. It's simple as that. It's, it's working. <laughs> and if the book prompts any etiquette questions like, what's an appropriate tip for my private pilot? Or is it okay to wear a white bikini to work? Have your people send it to our people yeah. via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Or via our hotline, also known as the phone at Brendan's Cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554. That is 213-621-3554. And now, it's time for Chattering Class, where we're schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic, and this time, we bring you a lesson from our archives. Yes, the Pope officially retires this coming week, and we are hearing some listeners, namely atheists, are growing weary of all the news coverage. Like, why should they care? So, here's an interview Brendan conducted with philosopher and writer Alain de Bolton. Last March, he published his book, Religion for Atheists, A Non-Believer's Guide to the Uses of Religion. So, Alain, your book's thesis is that atheists can learn a thing or two from religion. Yep. Uh, you started off by saying that you yourself are an atheist. Sure. But you have found some useful, even consoling ideas that appeal to you and that may appeal to other people who are non-believers. Yep. I mean, I start my book very bluntly by going, I'm just going to assert here, um, and the arguments you know, are elsewhere and stated better by other people. But I'm going to assert that God does not exist, of course. Now let's move yeah. on. So I'm, I, I allow myself deliberately and polemically to move on from that question quite quickly in order to address the bigger question, which is, okay, so how do we construct a good life and a good world? Yeah, it's not as catchy as Nietzsche, but um, it works. <laughs> it's a strong open. So while writing this book, what was the most useful idea you found that religion can share with non-believers? Uh, one extraordinary uh, proposition 
that uh, religion makes is that human life is so difficult that we're not going to be able to get through it without an awful lot of guidance. Um, mm. In other words, adults face so many challenges in their relationships, in their workplace, uh, in relation to broader questions of, of meaning and their mortality, that um, they, they're going to need something uh, to appeal to, to um, look to as a source of wisdom, as a source of community, as a source of uh, ethical uh, reminders. Uh, so, so that's what religions believe that, you know, that people need. And I kind of agree to that. I mean, I'm, I'm in the odd position of thinking um, the specific doctrines and ideas that religion puts forward are often not ones that I'm in sympathy with. But I like their conception that getting through life um, is going to require a bit more support and structure, if you like, than the secular mm. world often allows for. You don't think a blend of enlightenment thinking and uh, democracy can kind of provide that structure for us? I think that we have so many good ideas in enlightened secular society. So uh, at one level, the answer to your question is absolutely. The problem is our good ideas don't stick in the sense that our commitments to all sorts of rather nice things like love and kindness and wonder and gratitude and forgiveness, um, all these things that we believe in intellectually don't have traction necessarily on society and on individuals at a day-to-day -day level. And modern politics is, is, you know, just shows that up. So I think what's interesting about religions is they are supreme mechanisms for making ideas stick. Well, you discuss in your book that one of the ways religions make things stick is through the use of ritual. And one of the religious rituals that you discovered that you think the secular world uh, can benefit from is an agape feast. Can you explain... Uh, what agape feasts are and why you think they're useful. Sure. Well, one of the things that all the major religions go in for is breaking bread together, is uh, mm. creating meals that are communal, properly communal, and allow in strangers, perhaps even strangers from other faiths or from no faiths at all. Um, yeah. A kind of open-ended hospitality is a feature of the traditional faiths. And you have to remember that before the mass became a service for the uh, you know, holy communion was something you did in a, in a church, it took yeah. place around a table as a communal meal between friends and strangers. And these were known as agape feasts, um, literally in agape, ancient Greek for love, love feasts. And they were described as such because they were about remembering the message of love that Jesus had given. Apparently, they got a little bit out of hand. Sometimes when people had a little bit too much to drink, the love that Jesus had proposed turned into, um, well, we'd say a little bit raunchy. So um, eventually, this was uh, uh, people put an end to this and uh, uh, things entered the church and became a bit more sober. But looking across the, you know, the history of religions, I was rather fascinated by this tradition because you, you, it crops up in, in other faiths as well. And my thought was, there's something going on here about renewing social bonds through communal eating that the secular world uh, could very easily learn from without needing to accept anything supernatural at all. But don't you think we're doing this on some level? I mean, particularly, I'm guessing, the people who are most likely to buy your book, you know, they're going out to restaurants, they're attending dinner parties. Isn't that how they encounter other people? Well, I think there's a really big difference. The, the modern world, of course, has occasions of sociability, but it doesn't reliably, outside the world of work, have mechanisms for turning 
strangers into friends. And I think one of the common mm. complaints that people make of the modern world is we're not so hot on community, that community building is something we're quite bad at doing. Of course, there are professional organizations or groups of friends who have a shared interest in you know, fly fishing or ice hockey. That's not the problem. The problem is how does the vast an anonymity of contemporary society get broken down? And we tend to wander around the modern world with our heads down, our arms crossed, expecting that the stranger is going to be a person of infinite hostility or strangeness. And, yeah. uh, you know, religions have these mechanisms for trying to break down those uh, suspicions, which I think, you know, w one can look at and, and learn from, not everything from, but certainly some fascinating insights. Certainly be a lot easier than inventing a radio show just to talk to people you think are interesting. So, <laughs> well, of course, I mean, radio shows do, do um, present that function. It's interesting that, you know, the guy who leads the radio show is called a host. Now, host yeah. is a religious term. Um, that's precisely what religions uh, believe that they're in the business of doing, hosting connections between strangers. So in that sense, the modern radio has uh, definitely learned, um, even unconsciously, from religious tradition. So did you just consecrate me as a secular priest? <laughs> I, I think that just <laughs> happened, yeah. I'm going to put that on my bio. Uh, Alon, yeah, thanks exactly. so much for coming by and chatting with us. Okay, thank you so much. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Join us next week when TV talk show legend Dick Cavett stops by to answer your etiquette questions. Till then, you can keep up with us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Our intern is Tamika Adams. Thanks also to Bill Lance and to all of our friends at Public Radio's business show Marketplace. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The band Phoenix is from Paris. Their 2009 album Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix went gangbusters. This week, they released the first track from their follow-up album, Bankrupt. Check it out. It's called Entertainment. It's about our show. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Tune in next week when we speak with... Actually, who's on the show next week? I don't know. Jackson, fast forward to next week. Fast forward! President Blue Ivy Carter, welcome to the show. Too far, Jackson. Rewind. Sorry! <laughs>